The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Labor Day weekend in the United States and Canada at the close of a lost summer. Remember, if you're planning on toppling a statue or burning a police station or putting someone in a coma, uh, you can't wear white after Labor Day. So this weekend, go for it. A white sport coat and a pink carnation. Looting. Uh, I said last week I'd had an accident. My pain has gotten rather worse since returning uh, to North America. Make of that what you will. So I may have to bail early, but I'm going to have a jolly good go at staggering through to our Labor Day observances at the end of the show. I've got Labor Day pains, uh, not labor pains. I'm not one of these pregnant men who add so much to the gaiety of the woke scene these days. The summer of stupid is going out with one spectacular everything price to clear massive store-wide blowout. Not a blowout in the Nancy Pelosi sense, but in the sense uh, when your light bulb blows and you can't find the black man who invented it to tell you where the breakers are, or if he's invented the breakers yet. Ladies and gentlemen, President Presumptive Joe Biden. Why in God's name don't we teach history in history classes? A black man invented the light bulb, not a white guy named Edison. Okay? There's so much. Did anybody know before what's recently happened? Electricity is the new rock and roll, just as Pat Boone took the raw jungle rhythms of Little Richard and made them safe and bland for middle America, so Thomas Edison took the electric blazing light burst of the black man and made it into tasteful muted sconces. Uh, Ever since 9-11, in Britain and Europe, whenever an exhibition opens, you discover that everything that matters in the modern world was invented by a Muslim, uh, except apparently in America, where everything was invented by a black man. So if you're a white man, you don't really have a dog in this fight. You can just sit back and may the best man win. The blacks invented radiators, but the Mohammedans invented air conditioning. Was a black man the first man on the moon? Or was it the famous Muslim astronaut Mustafa Blastov? Okay, enough of that. My Muslim gag writer and my black gag writer are now wrestling in the back alley. Uh, Rather homoerotically, in fact. Oh, one more thing. Don't you think when basically Joe Biden accuses Thomas Edison of ripping off Lewis Latimer that in this situation, Thomas Edison is the Joe Biden and Lewis Latimer is the Neil Kinnock of the scenario. Uh, The Welsh being the blacks of Great Britain and all that. Okay, okay, enough of that. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime, and no, I don't mean the United Kingdom, I mean the Australian state of Victoria. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. (laughs) 
Our Brit Wanker Copper Spot technically embraces all Her Majesty's constabularies around the planet. Uh, in that sense, for the purposes of wanker eligibility, we define Brit in the Sir John A. MacDonald, a British subject I was born and a British subject I shall die sense. Or, as we're speaking of Australians, uh, Sir Robert Menzies. A uh, grand declaration that I'm British to my bootstraps, in this case, wanker policeman's bootstraps. Yet, though we have included in this series wanker coppers from Ulster, Quebec, New South Wales, we have nevertheless operated on the blithe assumption, born of many years of close observation, that ultimately no one outwankers the Metropolitan Police and the English County Constabularies. But the old wanker Colossus is looking a little wobbly and complacent next to the cocky young challenger from Melbourne. Just a couple of days ago, the Victoria Police went viral uh, for handcuffing a sobbing pregnant mum in her pyjamas in front of her children and an hour out from her ultrasound appointment. Yeah, you're under arrest in relation to incitement. Incitement. Yeah, but, yeah, you're not obliged to say or do anything, but anything you say or do may be given evidence. Excuse me, incitement for what? What the? What on earth? Yeah. Excuse me, what? What on earth? Yeah, just put your phone down. Can you like record this? I'm in my pajamas. What's this? Ultrasound in an hour. Yeah, pregnant. she's pregnant, so. Yeah. Well, I'm taking anything. What's this about? I have an ultrasound just in an hour. Let me finish, and I'll explain. It's in relation to a Facebook post. In relation to a. Zoe Bueller was cuffed and arrested and had every computer and mobile telephone in her flat seized as evidence for the crime of incitement, which is a somewhat creative expansion of Victoria's 1958 Crimes Act uh, that they're now redefining to apply to Twitter and Facebook posts that oppose the policies of the government of Victoria, headed by Chairman Dan, so-called. Miss Bueller had proposed a Freedom Day event to protest the lockdown. And by the same logic, the apparently metastasizing crime of incitement was used to justify taking a battering ram to the front door of James Bartolo and wrestling him to the ground. Yeah, you've rocked up. I was on the toilet. Yeah, I've just gotten up. What, what, what? Are you going to open the door, yes or no? Give me a minute. Well, no, no, no. what, what is this in regards to? What's it in regards to? You haven't told me anything. Incitement for what? I told them not to go to the protest. Well, I'm telling you right now. I can speak to you right now. Whoa, you do that. You know what? Leave my shit! Don't break my stuff, you fucking retard! Hey, stop breaking my shit! Leave my shit! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Okay, alright, stop! I'll, I'll stop! Okay, alright! Ah, but don't worry, Mr. Bartolo is said to be a COVID conspiracy theorist. Which I take it is someone who has a different view of how this thing originated and what we ought to do about it. Uh-huh. So if you're a 9-11 truther, uh, say, like uh, Rosie O'Donnell, you should be at risk of getting your door kicked in. And what's also interesting is that the same commenters who say Miss Bueller and Mr Bartolo 
were being idiots and should have just meekly complied with everything the coppers demanded are the same people who say that if a black guy resists arrest in Atlanta by seizing the taser and firing it at police, that's justification for burning down Atlanta or any other city that tickles your fancy. As a matter of fact, a black man resisting arrest thousands of miles away is justification for banning the lyrics of Rule Britannia or changing the name of Coon Cheese. But Mr Bartolo's belief in a conspiracy theory, which is to say he disagrees with the official version of events, is now dignified as incitement. Incitement to what? Incitement to spread non-official versions of public policy issues? The last time I was down in Oz, maybe it was the time before I, uh, I, I lose sense of time as lockdown lurches on, I got into a disagreement with certain very prominent conservative figures uh, in the ruling party down under about the government's decision to drop its plans to repeal Section 18, the anti-free speech law, because, as this particular senior figure put it, it wasn't a first-order issue. And I responded that it was the one that enabled you to talk about all the so-called first-order issues honestly. And that furthermore, Section 18 helped bolster a more general hostility to free speech by Australian uh, institutions. So here we are, just a couple of years later, with the Australian police monitoring those who make Twitter and Facebook posts opposing the government. Now, in fairness, the Victoria Police has responded to the Zoe Bueller arrest by conceding, as the Australian vernacular has it, that they'd stuffed the optics. Here's Assistant Commissioner Luke Cornelius. Of course, uh, you know, I'd be the first to acknowledge um, the, the optics, for want of a better description, of arresting a pregnant female. It's never going to look good. Uh, I mean, the optics of arresting someone who's pregnant is terrible. Yeah, he's a human being, sufficiently human to see that when you handcuff a pregnant mum in her pyjamas before the ultrasound, the optics are terrible. That's just more bollocks from the Victoria Police. The reason they did what they did is because the optics are terrible. There are three kinds of reaction to these incidents. One is that of Alan Jones or Rita Panay. My God, this is disgraceful and appalling. How have we sunk so low? Then there are the lefties hot for state power, saying these people should have just cooperated, not a burden they impose on, say, a black man with an arrest warrant reaching for a knife in Kenosha. And then there are the vast swathe of people in between who are as horrified as Alan Jones or Rita Panay, but draw an entirely different conclusion. Golly, if they're prepared to do that to a pregnant mum in front of her kids, what will they do to me? Better keep your head down. Do as you're told. Better comply. Stuffing the optics is part of the Victoria Police's strategy to get you used to the new normal. And just to make sure you get it, Assistant Commissioner Cornelius lays out just what the new normal you have to comply with is. So if you find yourself on public transport on Saturday, coming into the city, you can expect that police will want to speak to you. Police will want you to explain uh, which of the permitted reasons uh, you have for leaving home. 
Uh, and of course, if you're leaving home or you've left home in order to protest, uh, if you're outside your five kilometre bubble, uh, you'll be held in breach and you will be fined. Uh, and if you persist in your behaviour uh, and you don't comply, you will be arrested in the interests of keeping everyone safe. I think we can take it as read that such a society is not free. Ah, but don't worry, it's just uh, temporarily not free. Two weeks to flatten the curve. The curve of what? Zoe Bueller's belly? Your wanker coppers, possibly of the year, Luke Cornelius and the Victoria Police. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat? We may have to splash out on a new ident for this feature if it's going to be dominated by the Victorians. Our usual wanker copper music is a version of the theme to the UK uh, telly show of the 60s, Zed Cars. Uh, I'm not sure I can recall any Aussie drama series from the 60s except Skippy the Bush kangaroo so i suppose we could do stuffy 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 the oz wanker cop but if you know of any aussie or victorian police show themes that would be appropriate do let me know a few months ago there were proposals in victoria to change the name of the state uh, because uh, people didn't want to be associated with a white colonialist racist queen uh, on behalf of Queen Victoria, I'm in favour of changing the name of the state because I don't think the poor, blameless, white, colonialist, racist queen should have to be associated with a state like this. To reprise my line from almost six months ago, if this is a war, the state should be taking it to the enemy. Instead, China's laughing and the state is taking it to us. So it's illegal to protest the current Premier of Victoria. If you're feeling a bit frustrated, why not protest some Premier who died a century and a quarter ago? It's Mark Stein's Statue of the Night. You put me high upon a needs Sir John A. Macdonald. The first Prime Minister of the Dominion of Canada was a great man without whom the unification of the provinces of British North America would not have occurred. The creation of one of the great liberal democracies of the modern era is his achievement more than any other man's. And it is such an achievement that millions of people around the world want to move to Canada so they can exercise their freedom to tear down his statue. Better get here sharpish, folks. The mob's work is almost done. Sir John is now entirely a pariah in the nation he founded. Last week, the snarling goons tore down Macdonald's statue in Dominion Square in Montreal and decapitated it on the way down. It's a handsome statue, by the way, by George Edward Wade, a fine sculptor uh, who did the uh, Diamond Jubilee statue of Queen Victoria in Colombo, uh, Sri Lanka. And um, those of Mr and Mrs Booth, the founders of the Salvation Army in London. We forget when we destroy these statues 
that we are destroying works of art and generally of a quality that our grunting, knuckle-dragging, moronic age cannot do as well. Statuary like opera and string quartets and all the arts of beauty is in steep decline in our ugly time. Anyway, the mob tore McDonald down in Montreal. In Ontario, the town of Baden, that's about halfway uh, between Kitchener and Stratford, uh, has about 5,000 people, 22 of whom are statues. Uh, four years ago, it opened a prime minister's path uh, at the local castle with statues of all 22 former Canadian heads of government. The very first statue, of course was of the very first PM, but not any longer. After weeks of demonstrations and debate, the Sir John A. Macdonald statue in Baden has been moved. Wilmot Township says the controversial statue was removed this morning from the Prime Minister's path at Castle Kilbride. It's now being stored at an undisclosed location. Last week, council voted to move the statue until they figure out a long-term plan. The statue has sparked ongoing debate about McDonald's legacy and his role in the residential school system. There have been protests sit-ins and on several occasions red paint has been thrown on the statue so now for all you alexander mckenzie fans out there he's numero uno enjoy him while you can until they dig up what his position was on transgender bathrooms on the transcontinental railway the mob brought down mcdonald in montreal craven public officials brought down mcdonald in baden um, at Queen's Park in Toronto, the statue of Macdonald is now obscured from view by plywood sheeting and a black bag on his head in order not to give offence, uh, in order to protect him, we're told. If Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, signed off on that, he's the one who ought to be going around in plywood sheeting and a black bag. The inventors, uh, or at any rate the popularisers of plywood, were basically Samuel Bentham, uh, Jeremy Bentham's uh, brother, younger brother, and the Nobel Prize guy's dad. Uh, were they racists? Will the plywood trigger the mob even more than the statue? Let's head west. In Western Canada, there is now just one statue of Sir John A. Macdonald still standing. Just one statue at Victoria Park in Regina. Andrew Scheer, Sir John's successor as leader of the Conservative Party, I blush to say, decided to hold a pro-Macdonald rally at the statue. He was uh, the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition until just a few days ago, and you'll be glad to hear that the loss of his job has not in any way diminished Mr. Shear's unerring ability to botch even the simplest task. He began by meeting his opponents 15 sixteenths of the way. We do not memorialize people because we glorify every aspect of their lives. I don't believe anyone ever looked at a statue of Caesar or William the Conqueror or Queen Victoria, Patton, even Rocket Richard, and thought that person must have been perfect. Unfortunately for Shear, they're way beyond those rote, formulaic genuflections. Should we be proud? Should we be proud of Happily, Mr. Shear finds this sort of thing productive. I just want to thank you very much for starting an actual conversation and putting forward your points in a respectful way. 
before that. Yeah. I'm happy to continue this conversation. It's nice when the cameras are all facing Why does that screeching harpy think Sir John A. Macdonald committed genocide? Because during his ministry, Canada set up the Residential Schools Program. This was basically a Canadian version of Lord Macaulay's approach to Indian schooling in uh, India. Uh, this was for Indian schooling in Canada, uh, the, the approach being that you do the natives a favour when you teach them about Greece and Rome and Magna Carta and Shakespeare and Bach and all the things an English schoolboy gets in on and enables him to function uh, in the modern world. I agree with that. Uh, the British approach to education was to make everyone British, from the Solomon Islands to Nunavut. Unfortunately, in the 90s, the political winds changed and the usual asses decided that the residential schools programme was, quote, cultural genocide. There are two objections to this, as I pointed out in The Spectator and The National Post over 20 years ago. First, the term cultural genocide is obviously grossly insulting and trivialising to the victims of actual genocide, since cultural genocide doesn't involve actually killing anybody. And secondly, it's going to get confused with actual genocide. So that those people who hijacked the dead husk of Andrew Shear at that rally seriously think Sir John A. Macdonald was a mass murderer. We are doomed, not by the mob, but by its appeasers, by those who plywood the statue in Toronto, by those who mothball the statue in Baden, and by those who defend the statue in Regina, by conceding 90% of the argument. As I said a few weeks ago in an American context, I used to worry there'd be a civil war. Now I'm worried there won't be. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com TFOT. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Labor Day weekend in North America. There are a lot of poems that attempt to convey the soul-crushing, back-breaking burden of labor. But as fewer and fewer of us do that kind of work, uh, and in fact, over these last six months, millions and millions of us have been prevented from doing any kind of work. Uh, I thought I'd pick something that considers the subject more philosophically. Indeed, in this poem, labor is the answer to the most fundamental question. Why are we here? It's by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, uh, back before she married Robert Browning, and in fact, this was one of the poems in a collection by Elizabeth that enthralled Browning and persuaded him to send her a fan letter, as a result of which they met and fell in love and wed. God did anoint thee, says Elizabeth Barrett, to wrestle, not to reign by which one understands not just that man is here to work, but also to struggle at his work, to wrestle. And whether you agree with that or not, historically we have understood that work is what gives life dignity and purpose. And in the world we are moving into very rapidly, in which there will be no work, 
and thus not a lot of dignity or purpose, there will also be no struggle as the titans of Apple and Amazon are keen that the formerly working class should receive a living wage and thus be able to divert themselves with all the shiny new toys Apple and Amazon will make for us. And uh, if you can't afford Apple and Amazon, there's always heroin and opioids. The future, Mrs. Browning took a different view, first published in December 1842 in Graham's magazine by Elizabeth Barrett Barrett, as then was, a sonnet on work. What are we set on earth for? Say, to toil, nor seek to leave thy tending of the vines for all the heat of the day till it declines, and death's mild curfew shall from work assoil. God did anoint thee with his odorous oil to wrestle, not to reign, and he assigns all thy tears over like pure crystallines, for younger fellow workers of the soil to wear for amulets, so others shall take patience, labour, to their heart and hand, from thy hand and thy heart, and thy brave chair. And God's grace fructify through thee to all, the least flower with a brimming cup may stand, and share its dewdrop with another near. A poem from me to you by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, called Simply Work. The Barrett family had a lot of plantation income from Jamaica, uh, but on the other hand, Elizabeth herself was an ardent and outspoken abolitionist all her life. Whether that will suffice when the mob comes to cancel her, we shall see. And if you were in the mood for something a little more sweating and straining... Uh, we shall have that for you upcoming in our Song of the Week. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Uh, Daphne Brains, Daphne Brains. Uh, I hope one or other of those is correct because uh, Daphne is a lovely name. Uh, two of my favourite ladies' names are Daphne and... Dimphna. And Daphne sounds like a most mellifluous melange of the two. Uh, anyway, uh, Daphne writes, uh, watching this reminds me of another brilliant distillation by our esteemed host, written in one of his splendid books, the title of precisely which one escapes me right now. I believe it's either America Alone, The Undocumented Mark Stein, or Lights Out. Um, I think it might be Lights Out, actually, although your guess is as good as mine. When talking about the Salman Rushdie fatwa, Mark recounts how the British described the symbolism, the symbolism of the burning of Rushdie's books. I don't remember the exact quote, but it goes something like this. There was nothing symbolic about it. If they could have, they would have burned Rushdie himself. And if his wife and kids had swung by, they'd have burned them too. That's uh, very true, Daphne. In fact, uh, people were attacked stabbed, shot, firebombed, and died all over the world. Translators, publishers, and those with far more tenuous uh, connections to Rushdie, from Turkey to Japan, Italy to Pakistan, uh, India to Norway, nothing symbolic 
about stabbing to death actual living people uh, in those countries, and they would have done that to Salman Rushdie if they'd caught up with him. Daphna continues, those who have been on the tough end of persecution know how true that is. There is nothing symbolic about book burning. Heinrich Heine got one thing right. Dort wo man Bucher verbrennt, verbrennt man aus am Ende Menschen. When they have burned books, they will in the end also burn men. I have no idea how you say statue in German, but the same principle applies. These grunting moronic goons, love that, are destroying statues because they cannot as of yet physically destroy human beings. Emotionally, financially, and socially, they're doing a not bad job of it. But if we as a society don't take a stand on this, and voting Trump in on November the 3rd is only the first baby step, then it will follow its natural course. And we might find ourselves paraphrasing another German. First they came for Robert E. Lee, but I wasn't a statue of a Confederate general, and so I said nothing. (laughs) Don't make me laugh, Daphne, because in my present... Pain. I've got a lot of pain at the moment, and uh, it's the kind of pain where when you uh, even just have a mild titter, it goes all right up through your torso. So a laugh like that, that is a great line. I had a similar line in our summer audio adventure, The Prisoner of Windsor, but I actually think yours is rather funnier because it's uh, actually hurt me uh, when I laughed at it, uh, which my own line didn't. Uh, A movement... uh, Uh, built on destruction. This is, uh, uh, I think, the nub of Daphne's point. A movement built on destruction is always worth keeping a safe distance from. It doesn't matter whether they're destroying statues, destroying buildings, destroying people. It's the urge to destroy that is the salient feature. And the bloodlust is not exactly being held in check, Um, Roger Hallam, the founder of the Extinction Rebellion movement, has said that MPs and businessmen are to blame for, quote, the climate catastrophe. And as this soi-disant catastrophe is getting worse, so should uh, their punishment. Quote, so in 1990, you might have given them six months in prison. Now maybe you should put a bullet through their head, unquote. OK. Uh Mr. Hallam remains an entirely respectable person, ever welcome, in the studios of the BBC or the pages of The Guardian. By contrast, it recently emerged that my old chum Tony Abbott, the former Australian Prime Minister, was about to be appointed to the Board of Trade of the uh, British government. It's not a particularly prestigious job, but it's one he's certainly more than qualified to do. But immediately, all the same people who take a relaxed view of Roger Hallam wanting to put a bullet through the heads of businessmen uh, had the vapours about dear old Tony on the Board of Trade and for the same public policy, because Mr Abbott takes a generally relaxed view of the climate catastrophe. I see Ian McKellen, so butch as Magneto the supervillain in the X-Men movies and such a big girl's blouse in real life, is among those demanding Abbott be pronounced beyond the pale. Uh, in Serene's case, it's because Tony was on the losing side of the Oz gay marriage referendum a couple of years back. It seems sad to have to point this out to a great artist 
But I don't think you can be fully human and define the range of acceptable opinion this narrowly. In that sense, he and Roger Hallam, with his bullet in the brain fantasies, are actually on just on different points on the same continuum, and those points aren't very far apart. And finally, just to wrap this all up and to come back to Daphne's point about destruction, China, China, China. All comes back to China. 25 years ago, we were told to get used to getting all our widgets and our crappy These Colors Don't Run t-shirts from China. And we were going to be the knowledge economy. And then somehow or other, they wound up with the knowledge economy. So now we get our widgets, our crappy T-shirts, our laptops, our smartphones from China. And then SARS came along. So now we get our widgets, our T-shirts, our smartphones, and our new exotic economy crippling diseases from China. Uh, can we talk about that on the big multinational media outlets or put it on an NBA social justice T-shirt? Uh, no. Because increasingly we're getting our freedom of speech defined by China, too. Oh, and as in Victoria, our freedom of movement is now trending very Chinese, too. What was it that wanker copper was saying? Oh, you've got to stay within your five... If, if you have a legitimate reason to leave the house, you still have to stay within your five-kilometre bubble. OK, OK, uh, that, that, that bubble concept sounds very Chinese. And now, just as the icing on the cake, we have in all its frenzy and viciousness and thoroughness Chinese-style cultural revolution too. Gee, it's almost like when the formal handover comes, we won't even notice the difference. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. There aren't many songs about labor. That's to say, not just about work, a job, but a song you can feel the sweat and ache in. You can find plenty of work in 9 to 5, what a way to make a living type numbers, but not a lot in which you can feel the writer putting other folks' muscle into it. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 tons, a number nine coal, and the straw boss said, Well, to bless my soul, you load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store A sweat-dripping backbreaker of a song that America, at the height of the so-called white bread picket fence squeaky clean Eisenhower era, was cheerily singing along with. It was huge in its day, in a way that the fragmented and shriveled Hot 100 of today can barely imagine. Tennessee Ernie Ford's version was released on October 17th, 1955. Nine days later, it had sold 400,000 copies. By November 10th, it had sold another 600,000 to become the fastest-selling million-seller in pop history, a record it retains to this day. By December 15th, it had racked up two million, and as 1955 turned to 56, it was number one for seven weeks before being displaced by Dean Martin's 
memories are made of this. Who'd have thought there was so much gravy in a sing-along about the unrelenting, grinding misery of coal mining? You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. When something's that big a hit, it's easy to be dismissive, but in fact it's very deftly done. There's a whole world captured in that line about owing your soul to the company store. In many mining communities, workers lived in company-owned housing, the cost of which was docked from their wages, and what was left was paid in scrip, That's to say, company-issued tokens or vouchers that could only be redeemed for goods at the company store. To the unions who fought and eventually defeated the system, it was a form of bondage in which it was impossible for workers to amass any cash savings. There was no future except the next paycheck to be spent on next week's overpriced necessities at that company store. Against that, it should be said that for most miners, if they needed a bed or a dining table or uh, some such expensive item, uh, the only credit available was script credit, uh, which admittedly used to profligately could easily leave you owing your soul to the company stole in the way one now does to the credit card companies. Whatever the reality, the lines are brilliantly evocative shorthand of what in mid-20th century was still an instantly recognisable way of life. Written almost a decade before Tennessee Ernie Ford struck gold with it, 16 Tons was the work of Merle Travis. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? You get another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. He was a country singer and in the 40s found himself facing what would be a common predicament in a music industry coming to value authenticity, so-called, over Tin Pan Alley professionalism. Uh, In the wake of the success of Burl Ives, of all people, Travis had been asked by Capitol Records to make an album of folk songs. But as he told them, uh, Ives has already sung every folk song. There weren't any left. Unfazed, Capitol's Cliffy Stone told Travis that in that case he should just write his own folk songs, but to go ahead and do it quickly because they wanted to go into the studio the next day. So on one night in August 1946, Merle Travis sat down and wrote three folk songs about Muhlenberg County, Kentucky, where his father had worked in the mines. And one of those songs was this. Now some people say a man's made out of mud, but a poor man's made out of muscle and blood. A muscle and blood, skin and bones, a mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Merle Travis had grown up among coal miners. His father played the banjo Merle took to the guitar. Two other miners, uh, Mose Rager and Ike Everly, father of the eponymous brothers Don and Phil. Uh, Mose Rager and Ike Everly helped Merle improve his technique, teaching him how to use his thumb for the bass strings. By 1935, he was playing with the Tennessee Tomcats, uh, then the Georgia Wildcats, And pretty soon he figured 
as few had up to that point, that the guitar could be a lead instrument. He landed that Capitol Records contract and scored big with Divorce Me COD and So Round, So Firm, So Fully Packed. Uh... Travis had a facility for big, memorable hooks, and so asked to hustle up a handful of folk songs overnight. He figured, why not? He said he remembered a letter his brother had sent him during the war about the death of the great reporter Ernie Pyle in the Pacific. And in the course of his musings, John Travis had sighed, It's like working in the coal mines, another day older and deeper in debt. Merle recalled, too, his father's weary, fatalistic shrug when asked how things were going. I can't afford to die. I owe my soul to the company store. Put those two lines together and you've got half the song. But there's another story told about the birth of 16 tons that it's nothing to do with Merle Travis or John Travis or Pa Travis. If you'd been around WKIZ in Hazard, Kentucky in the early 60s, you'd have run into a fellow called George Davis who told folks that he'd written the song and that Travis had changed a couple of lines and called it his. According to whom he was telling and when, uh, Mr. Davis's song was originally called either 21 tons or 9 to 10 tons. The second is ridiculous. You can't get away with a ballpark figure. You need a precise, explicit number to give you the sense of a back-breaking target racked up painfully pound by pound. As for 21 tons, that sounds more like the British singer Max Bygrave's gleeful parody... 17 tons. Some people say your woman's made of sugar so sweet, but my wife's made out of muscle of meat, muscle of meat, skin and fat like a tubeless tire. She never goes flat, she weighs 17 tons. And what do I get? Another food bill and deeper in debt. Don't invite me out, brother. I can't go. I owe my soul to the grocery store. Now we met last summer at a seaside resort. There were girls much thinner, but she was a sport. I went to the beach with this hefty maid. I didn't get sunburned. I stayed in her shade. Seventeen times. There were a lot of those about at the time. Spike Jones did 16 tacos. Uh, As for George Davis's claim to have written it, in November 1966, someone at WKIZ in Kentucky recorded the so-called original. Uh, Obviously, decades after Davis quote-unquote composed it, so it doesn't prove anything one way or another, Uh, but it does come over as a bad cover version by someone not fully on top of the lyrics. I loaded 16 tons to try to get ahead It got deeper and deeper in debt instead well, they got what I made and they wanted some more And now I owe my soul at the company store That's certainly inferior to Mel Travis's version. Does that mean it must be the original? Written as Davis claimed back in the 30s and merely buffed a little in 1946? 
There's no supporting evidence for the aggrieved man's claim, although uh, there is a long tradition of rough and ready fragmentary vernacular work songs eventually being neatened and organised into a finished version by professional songwriters. Or it could be that, as all hit-making composers and lyricists well know, failure is an orphan, but success has a hundred fathers, and a successful song, a hundred paternity suits. Uh, but there's something a little too pat, uh, I think, in a song about getting ripped off by the mining company, itself getting ripped off by the record company. Either way, uh, in this case, success was a long time a-coming for the song, until one day in 1955, with nary a thought, Tennessee Ernie Ford sang it on his daily NBC daytime show. He'd heard it when he'd worked with Merle Travis on Cliffy Stone's Hometown Jamboree, and he'd always liked it. And within five days of his casual exhumation of the song, NBC had received 1,200 letters from viewers demanding to know what it was and where they could get it. Uh, so a few weeks later, Tennessee Ernie sang it again live at the Indiana State Fair and 30,000 fairgoers roared their approval. What with the Daily TV show, Ford's record career had suffered from lack of attention. Uh, in September that year, Capital sent him a formal letter warning him of a breach of contract suit unless he cut two sides for an instant single. So he hurried into the studio and did a lively country blues for the A-side, You Don't Have to Be a Baby to Cry, and more or less as a filler track, offered 16 tons for the B-side. Who knows what makes a hit? To set the tempo for his six-piece band, Ford, as he often did, began snapping his fingers. And the producer, Lee Gillette, buzzed through from the control room. Leave that in! So they did. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died. One fist of iron, the other of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And maybe it was the finger snaps or Ford's voice or the plaintive instrumental echo of the final line after every chorus. Or maybe it was the combination. But for whatever reason, it's one of those occasions where the record transforms the song. An ordinary pseudo-folk verse and chorus number had been enlarged into something big, bold and emblematic. His big low growl is just right. Man enough to sound like a guy tough enough to work in a mine and thereby to underline the sense of diminishment of a big man rendered small by his economic circumstance. Merle Travis certainly understood. In later years, he would always end the song this way. I owe my soul to Tennessee Ernie Ford. But Ernie owed Merle too. Here they are together, two decades after the former 
made the latter song one for the ages. Hey, y'all can snap with me. Come on. Everybody snap. Yeah. You snapping, Grandpa? Uh, not like I used to. <laughs> <laughs> what am I life on that? I was born one morning. It was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. Raised in the cane break by an old mama line. No high-toned woman make me walk the line. You load 16 tons, and what are you getting? Another day older, deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Merle, I like this last verse. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't, a lot of men died. One fist of iron, the other of steel. The right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load 16 tons, and what are you getting? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Could spread that on a Martha White biscuit. <laughs> That's my man. That will do it for today's show. We will have a Sunday poem special for you this weekend. Hope you'll join us for that. Plus movies and music and some thoughts for Labor Day. Stay safe. Stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.